Listener Production. If you were to think of the ways that World War Three might start, a war between the US and China over Taiwan would be right up there on the list of possibilities. Tension over Taiwan has dominated the headlines again because of last week's controversial visit by a U.S. politician. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has landed in Taiwan after weeks of speculation over her potential visit. She is the highest-ranking American official to visit in 25 years. The People's Liberation Army declaring large-scale exercises and live ammunition drills. What we don't want to see is any unilateral action on either side of the Taiwan Strait, which changes the status quo. So given how much you'll be hearing about Taiwan over the months and probably years ahead, we're going to bring you an explainer of how Taiwan came to be such a disputed flashpoint. It had always been part of modern People's Republic of China's desire to reunify with Taiwan. But under President Xi Jinping, who came into power in 2012, that imperative became ever more present. How Taiwan became one of the world's biggest flashpoints for conflict, that is our briefing in just a moment. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Monday, August 8. Hey everyone, we have controversy at the Commonwealth Games. An Australian cricketer has tested positive with COVID, but has been allowed to play in the T20 match against India. Yeah, Talia McGrath was seen wearing a face mask in the stands, but not when she came out to bat. Um, India was only told she tested positive at the coin toss and initially wanted her stood down, but she played and Australia went on to win gold by just nine runs in a very dramatic match. Mm, So overnight Australia also won the men's beach volleyball and on the 10-metre platform with Cassiel Rousseau, javelin thrower Kelsey Lee Barber also won gold and Peter Bowl got silver in the 800-metre final. Probably not the result he or his family had wanted. He had gone in favourite and had high hopes of winning gold after winning Australia's hearts during the Tokyo Olympics where he came fourth. Yeah, and we're on top of the medal count um, as the games close in, the closing ceremonies tomorrow. Um, England are getting closer, though. They're just five medals behind, ten gold behind, but they may have left their run too late. China has wrapped up its military exercises around Taiwan. The four days of drills have demonstrated China's military strength and acted as a simulated blockade. On Sunday alone, Taiwan detected more than 60 Chinese Air Force planes and 14 warships. And ballistic missiles were launched over Taiwan's capital city, Taipei, for the first time. Those military exercises were triggered by a controversial visit to Taiwan last week by the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, which we'll unpack in a lot more detail in our briefing. Our own Foreign Minister Penny Wong has joined uh, her US and Japanese counterparts in condemning China's military aggression against Taiwan. And Beijing has accused Australia of unfairly finger-pointing. For the first time in almost four and a half years, Billa Wheeler's Nardesalingam family will go to work and school today without the threat of deportation. Yeah, they've been given permanent visas, allowing them to stay in Australia and also apply for citizenship in the coming years. Feeling is very happy, save my life, my girl's life is safe. 
That's the mother Priya there. The family of four have been living in the regional Queensland town since June after the new Labor government granted them bridging visas. Yeah, it's been a big story. They spent four years in immigration detention after their visas expired in 2018 and they were taken away from Biloela. Shadow Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews has said the decision undermines the immigration policies of past coalition governments. So if you've been travelling lately, if you've had to go through any airports, flown anywhere and you've been tearing your hair out, this might make you quite happy. Uh, Senior executives at Qantas have been told to get up and out from behind their desks and work as baggage handlers to help ease the backlog at airports around the country. Yeah, so about 100 managers will be out of the office and onto the tarmac for up to five days a week. And it's not the first time the airlines recruited office staff to the front line to keep planes and passengers moving. Would that make you feel better about losing your bags or not? Well, (laughs) I haven't lost my bags, but I've had friends who have. But you know what? It's probably a publicity stunt, let's face it. You know, a good, good photo op, but I kind of like it. And I think everyone loves seeing people who wouldn't otherwise get down and dirty, kind of put their money where their mouth is and see it from the worker's perspective. So, you know, it's those conversations that you have with people while you're out and about who you might not otherwise get to see as upper management that might make all the difference here. Yeah, and they might think twice about outsourcing as many of their services after that. Who knows? That is the voice of Judith Durham, who will be given a state funeral in Melbourne. The 79-year-old lead singer of The Seekers died on Friday after struggling with a lung condition. We're now in a tsunami of absolutely love and best wishes from all around the planet. You know, and all these beautiful words that have been said about Judith and her her voice and her, her character. It's really quite stunning. That was uh, Judith Durham's bandmate, Athel Guy, on Channel 10 there. The Seekers were absolutely huge in their day. If you haven't heard much about them, to give you some idea, their first three releases went to the top of the British charts. So they were this unknown band from Australia and they even knocked the Beatles off number one spot. So just a massive band and had a huge impact on the Australian music scene. Yeah, and a a very iconic voice. There's no one that sounds like Judith Durham, just such a beautiful sound and clearly a very beautiful person. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you later. I'm going to go deep on the backstory of Taiwan and how it became a global flashpoint. All right, now to our briefing explaining why Taiwan has become such a flashpoint for potential conflict. Now, in some ways, it's hard to define what Taiwan is. I mean, you can say it's essentially one big island and some smaller islands, 160 k's off the coast of mainland China. It gets more complex from there, though. In many ways, it behaves like a sovereign country. It has its own democratically elected government, has its own trading relationships, But officially, even our government doesn't regard it as an independent, sovereign nation. The Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, has made it clear he wants to take Taiwan back under Chinese control. And Western leaders, in particular the US President Joe Biden, has said that America would step in and defend Taiwan if China attacked it. I will say the White House walked that statement back and said they still have a policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan. So... Such an interesting place, and you're going to hear so much about it in the media in the coming months and years. So 
Let's find out more about its fascinating backstory. To explain it, we've got Jennifer Sue with us. She's a foreign policy researcher with a PhD from Cambridge. She was born in Taiwan and now she lives in Australia and works for the Lowy Institute, a foreign policy think tank. Jennifer Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Now, when you look back at the history of Taiwan, you see that this group of islands off the coast of China has been disputed by many different groups for at least a thousand years. So conflict there is nothing new. Yes, that's right. Over the centuries, Taiwan has seen a number of different groups settle, make use of Taiwan as an island, as a maritime outpost from the Spanish to the Dutch colonial empires to um, Japanese and the Chinese. So when was it last under full Chinese control? The current modern day um, People's Republic of China, its government would say, you know, they have the maps to show that they had control of Taiwan since the Qin Dynasty, which is the 1600s. But obviously that historical fact, I guess they would say it's a fact, is uh, open to interpretation. Okay, so the modern day Taiwan as we know it was formed in 1949 at the end of the Chinese Civil War. Your grandparents are actually part of that whole story. So can you give us a little bit of a, a brief history lesson? What actually happened at that time? So the Japanese had earlier uh, invaded China and sought to colonise or attempted to colonise China. The Japanese were defeated in the Second World War and as they moved out of China, the communist and the nationalist, the two competing political forces, were in civil conflict with one another. The nationalists had governmental control of their institutions but as they were sort of being moved ever outwards of that control of the institutions by the communists, the nationalists decided to retreat to Taiwan and take its people, its personnel with them. And this included my grandparents on both sides. They were government employees of the nationalist government. And so a lot of nationalist personnel and their family left on boats and sought asylum and then consequently establish the Republic of China, that is Taiwan, on the island of Taiwan in 1949. Okay, so they got the Japanese forces out of China. They descend into civil war. It's the nationalist forces who were controlling China at that point against the communist forces who eventually tanked the upper hand. The nationalists flee on boats to the island of Taiwan and they set up what they believe is the real capital of China on Taiwan. That's right, yes. So eventually it transitions from, I guess, that that military outpost controlled by the former nationalists to a democracy. Explain how that happened and how Taiwan evolved. So Taiwan up until the early 1990s was under authoritarian rule. The transition to democracy, the first democratic elections happened in the early 1990s. The Li Denghui was the first Taiwan-born president of Taiwan. So when that democratic transition happened 30-odd years ago, it was seen as a real triumph of democracy for the region and also for US, who is a longtime ally and supporter of Taiwan. 
So since the first democratic elections, Taiwan has held regular elections, hotly contested, but very vibrant and very dynamic. And now Taiwan is being held up as a model of democratic transition for Asia. Okay, so to summarise, the nationalist forces create this outpost in 1949. Eventually it transitions to becoming a democracy. Um, The first election is in 1996. At what point did China, controlled by the Communist Party, make clear their intentions to retake this territory, this island? So it had always been part of modern People's Republic of China's desire to reunify with Taiwan. But under President Xi Jinping, who came into power in 2012, that imperative became ever more present and um, has become on the top of the list of his priorities. So his priorities would then be reflected as that of the Chinese Communist Party and that of the Chinese nation. So Jennifer, as you said there, Xi Jinping has made controlling Taiwan a much greater priority than his predecessors. When do you think he will actually make a move on Taiwan? And do you think it's important that the West, the US, potentially Australia, step in? Well, there is increasing possibility, but we start from a very low base, let's say of, you know, 5% out of 100, right? And maybe that has increased to perhaps 20 or 25% over the last few years. So it's still relatively low, but it's neither certain or inevitable that it will happen. But we know that the US and other um, of its allies, including Australia is seeking to deter China from increasing that possibility to say 30 or 40%. So we start from a very low base of say five or perhaps even lower, but it has increased over the years. China has to do some of its own hard calculations. And this comes back to sort of globalization and the integration of our um, supply chains. So much of what China does economically and what the US does economically is connected, integrated in terms of supply chains. So if China should ever decide to launch an attack, which I hope it will never happen, then you can see that supply chain, that integration breaking down fairly rapidly. And this will cause not only detriment in terms of economic and trade detriment to China, but also to the rest of the world. So on a personal level, would you want the West to step in if this conflict escalated? I think on a personal level, I would hope we would not get into that situation and that the wishes of the Taiwanese people will be heard by the Australians, by the United States and by China, who seeks to bring Taiwan back into its fold. So I hope that communication line between all stakeholders remains open and that we don't get into a conflict that will be very difficult to extract from. Some of the dynamics we've talked about go back over a thousand years. Why is this island so controversial? Is it largely to do with its geography? Um, Yes, so Taiwan sits in the Taiwan Straits and it is a shipping trading route and it is an access point to the rest of the region, Northeast Asia and down southwards as well. So it is in a strategic position, but also it has become so politicised over the last 10 or so years that 
it's really difficult uh, for China under Xi Jinping to back down from their rhetoric when they've really ramped it up saying Taiwan is an integral part of China and that it must be brought back into the fold of the People's Republic of China. So I think the rhetoric that we've seen come out of China makes it really difficult for it to bring it back down and dial it down again. And what do you make of the recent visit of Nancy Pelosi from the US? Do you think that was a good or a bad thing for the people of Taiwan, given the big reaction from China? Nancy Pelosi's visit, there was no substance in the sense of her of her visit in promoting greater regional security. Many would say that her visit was a grandstanding act. But at the same time, if you look on the flip side, if she didn't visit Taiwan, then many would criticise the US and that people within her own party and the Republican Party would say that the US has caved into China and that will make the US weak. If she didn't visit that will make the US look weak. If she did visit, it creates a whole lot of regional security headaches, which we have seen. So I think it raises the stakes, it raises the tension and hasn't done Taiwan, the island or its people any favours. And now they're subject to trade sanctions from China, as well as having to deal with um, military drills coming from China as well. So I don't think the Pelosi visit did Taiwan any great favours. That was Jennifer Su, an analyst for the Lowy Institute who was born in Taiwan. And she was very measured throughout that interview. But I think at the end, she had a pretty strong view about Nancy Pelosi's visit that the Taiwanese, as she said, got nothing from it except the backlash from China, which makes you question why Nancy Pelosi made that decision, whether she still feels like she did the right thing. All right, that is it for today's briefing. Tomorrow's one you don't want to miss. Everything you need to know about monkeypox. Listener.